pray. Dear God, are those our roots? What do we do with that? New generation, new millennium, what do we do with it? We can't just sit here. We cannot. So, dear God, in these few moments we have, compel us to respond. For the glory and honor of our Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. You know what I find so stunning, so amazing, is how activist these young pioneers were. I mean, this is the Pioneer Memorial Church. This is a memorial to them. But how activist they were. And I think we probably need to disabuse ourselves of this notion that they were just a bunch of old fuddy-duddies who sat around munching graham crackers and reading the Bible while they sipped their herbal tea. They were not only activists, they were social activists. Social activists. Now, it's true they didn't have Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice to stir up their moral consciences, but I remind you, they had the bombshell of a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin written by Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she took the national sickness called slavery and dumped it into the heart of American social consciousness, social conversation. Yeah, you're right. They couldn't go, to, they, they, they couldn't go online and pull down the YouTube of Ferguson being set on fire by rioters over the shooting death of Michael Brown. They couldn't go onto the YouTube and find Eric Gardner in the chokehold that killed him. But they were witnesses. They stood on street corners. They knew about lynchings of runaway slaves, whether the lynching is on that street corner or under a nearby tree. They saw. They knew. They had grown up in a nation united in slavery, but a nation now divided by slavery. Those young pioneers, God bless them, had a social consciousness so that when they saw human beings sold as chattel and cattle, they knew it was wrong. Something must be done. So they acted. I mean, did you, did you, did you just catch the stance Joseph Bates took? That is a phenomenal statement. That's out of his little autobiography. I'm going to put the words back on the screen because we need to savor this a moment. These are our roots. Take a look. Joseph Bates. About the close of 1831... In commencement of 1832, anti-slavery societies began to be organized again in the United States, advocating immediate emancipation. I then began to feel the importance of taking a decided stand on the side of the oppressed. Take note, on the side of the oppressed is where you stand. My labor in the cause of temperance had caused a pretty thorough sifting of my friends, and I felt that I had no more friends that I wished to part with, but duty was clear that I could not be a consistent Christian if I stood on the side of the oppressor, for God was not there. Neither could I claim His promise if I stood on neutral ground. Hence, my only alternative was to plead for the slave, and thus I decided, end quote. No milk toast here, no wallflower. And this advocate, an activist for justice, Joseph Bates, of all people. In fact, he turned out to be one of the founders of the Fairhaven, that would be Massachusetts, Fairhaven Anti-Slavery Society. He's the hero of our story today. Let me put the title up for you as we move into this new series, Stories in the Rearview Mirror. We're, we're, we're looking back so we know how to go forward. 
times when you have to. This is one of those times. Title of this teaching today, Why I Believe in the 1,000-Man March After Ferguson. Let's talk about the hero of the story, Joseph Bates. He was quite a character. And it's true, that boy lived just a stone's throw away from the, from the Atlantic. And so when he sucked in that, that ocean brine, it just, it just was birthed in his soul. i got to be a sailor when I grow up. I mean, New Bedford is just down the road. Did you ever read Herman Melville's Moby Dick? I think most of us probably have, right? New Bedford is the town, the, the, the land town, where the, where the drama takes place. His father said, you're not going. But you heard it a moment ago, by the age of 15, that dream is just bursting out of his chest. I've got to be a captain of my own ship someday. So he signed up as a cabin boy. Hated it when he got over. About <laughs> drowned. And then that Liverpool incident, second voyage. Do you know I learned just this week? I didn't know this. But the War of 1812 so hated was the Royal Navy's practice of impressment. That's just ganging you, ganging you onto a ship that America went to war with the, with, with the British Empire. We will fight you. You cannot do this. He comes out of that five years later to the day. But he's so bitten by the bug that between 1818 and 1828, he will make ten more voyages. And guess what? True to his dream, he's advancing. Second mate. First mate. Captain. And eventually, the boy had dreamed, owner of his own ship and captain. <laughs> Along the way, he married his childhood sweetheart, Prudence Nye. Children are conceived every time daddy comes back to port. You know how it goes. Prudy, as it turns out, was the, was, was the secret placer of that little New Testament in his seaman's chest. He, put, he opens that up. Here's the rest of the story. He opens that up, finds the New Testament, begins to read it, and look, he becomes so, in, so overwhelmed with personal guilt. He's confronted with his sins that he almost, in despair, threw himself, he tells us in his autobiography, threw himself off the ship. Just, just I'm going to end my life. He didn't. Something held him back. The first port they got to was in South America. He got off. He grabbed his New Testament, went, went to shore found a tree, climbed up into the tree. He was afraid of snakes, and there were snakes. And in that tree, back to the New Testament, and pouring his heart out to God. And so it was that the sea breezes of divine grace and peace began to blow over that troubled sailor's heart. And he later wrote in his autobiography, I'll put his words on the screen for you, you see it there, my tongue, as, a, as, that, as that new fresh wind blew, my tongue was loose to praise God. All doubts and darkness respecting my conversion and acceptance with God <clears throat> excuse me, passed away like the morning dew. And I love this. And peace like a river for weeks and months occupied my heart and mind. End quote. You remember William Miller last week? Yep. Same. Same story, Joseph Bates. In fact, it was the same story for all the young pioneers. They, they met Christ. And out of that meeting developed a passion, a passion for the Savior. Joseph Bates, passionate. Oh, no, by the way, Joseph Bates not only was passionate about the Savior, but he did meet William Miller. Here's the story of the soon coming of Christ, and now he is passionate about the return of Jesus. You can't be passionate about Jesus and not be passionate about his return. You cannot. They both go together. By 1843, listen to this. Joseph Bates... 
knowing Jesus was coming soon, sold his farm and his real estate. He was a man of considerable means. He earned, I mean, he owned his own ship. He sold his farm and real estate, settled his debts in preparation for the coming of Christ, and proceeded to give virtually all of his holdings away to the consternation of prudence, begging him, please don't. To which Joseph Bates quietly replied, the Lord will provide. God will take care of us. Passion for the Savior, passion for His soon coming, passion to tell the good news of His soon coming to the world. The three passions of the young and not-so-young pioneers of this movement that you and I now belong to. And oh, by the way, may I tell you this? This retired sea captain, he was healthy as a horse. You heard about his little temperance uh, deal? Nobody got, there was nobody talking temperance when he got into it. He became convicted. In fact, I'll just tell you this, this is an aside. He was so healthy... The young pioneers were dying ahead of him. At the age of 65, just a young man, at the age of 65, they cut a three-foot three deep hole in the ice so that Captain Bates could baptize the candidate. The guy was just, just healthy. Now, here's how it started. He came under conviction. Nobody told him, but on his own, he began to modify his intake. Number one, he dropped liquor and wine from his preferred beverages. Number two, then it was profanity. No more cussing, all right? Number three, then it was tobacco. And then eventually he dropped tea, coffee, and rich desserts all on his own. In fact, on the day of his baptism, he organized one of the first temperance societies in the United States. I mean, the guy was a crusader. He was a champion. He expected people to change. Uh, so after his baptism, his last voyage, I'll tell you this too. So he says, okay, I'm, I'm getting really healthy. So I'm going to require it of all, all my sailors. And he had a boatload of sailors from Boston. And the rule, and I'm, I'm quoting now, he, made, he laid down this order that the men were to avoid all profanity, refrain entirely from alcohol, and keep Sunday a Sabbath. And the sailors later reported it was the least quarrelsome journey they, they had ever sailed. In fact, the word got out, tell you the truth, 70 boats out of New Bedford decided to follow Bates' example. No liquor, no profanity, and you've got to keep Sundays the Sabbath. I mean, the guy was a crusader. He was a reformer. And he got people to change their minds. You know his young friends, uh, Ellen and James White? You've probably heard of them. He got them to change their minds. Somebody sent him a pamphlet once, title of the pamphlet. Well, he put it down beside his Bible and said, let me see if this is true. So he's studying the Bible with a pamphlet. He says, my Lord, this is true. Title of the pamphlet, a tract showing that the seventh day should be observed as a Sabbath. So convinced is Captain Bates that this is the gospel truth that he decides to write his own little booklet, a little 48-pager, title of his booklet, The Seventh-Day Sabbath, A Perpetual Sign. James and Ellen read both the pamphlet and the little book, pulled out their Bibles, King James English, and compared the text and came to the same conviction themselves that the Sabbath, a gift to the human race in the Garden of Eden, was never removed as a gift and would be, remain God's gift to the human race to the Garden in the New Earth forever and ever. And as they say, the rest is history. But history, incidentally that has taken on racial inequality and racial divide head-on. So I'm reading, I'm reading Melody Mason's new book. I've been telling everybody about this book, so allow me to do the same to you. This, this young woman just came out with this book uh, uh, this last year, 
came back from the holiday, and the book was sitting on my, my desk. I'm in my second time reading it through now. I am so moved. It has radically changed my own prayer life. And I'm saying, go on to Amazon.com, please, $9.99, you can have the book. But I don't sell books on Sabbath, so. <laughs> Melody Mason. And by the way, I'll, I'll just insert this. It's the best book I have read by anybody within my community of faith dealing with the subject of prayer. You, I, I challenge you to find a better book. Title of the book, by the way, I haven't even given you the title, Daring to Ask for More. So anyway, I'm reading this book, and I discovered that in 1865, listen to this, 1865, by now this little movement out of the fractured Millerite movement, this movement of young pioneers has become the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 1865. Oh, by the way, the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, history is absolutely clear. They were three, Joseph Bates, James Ellen White. So this little movement built on the three passions, a passion for Jesus, the Savior, a passion for His soon coming, and a passion to get the word out. This little movement, 1865, January, the General Conference Committee convenes, and they vote to set aside specific days for prayer and fasting throughout 1865. And James White, who's editor of, of the Review and Herald, which was a, the a church uh, magazine at that time, still is, James White began to record, because the word went out, he began to record the responses of people who are fasting and praying on these designated dates. They were given the dates. And by the way, you need to know that in January of 1865, the G General Conference Committee designated topics for fasting and prayer, one of which was that God would somehow bring to cessation the bloody American Civil War raging around them. They started fasting and praying. <laughs> you want to talk about social activism blended with spiritual activism? And so the church prayed. And by the way, as it turns out, the Civil War ended in the spring of that year. The social consciousness and moral activism of this fledgling new movement concerning racial equality and equity are worth knowing, which is hardly to suggest... Now listen... Hardly to suggest that my church has not struggled over race relations and how best to live and minister and reflect Christ's self-sacrificing love between blacks and whites. We're having a tough time. Particularly, the church in this post-slavery society, 1865 until today. Speaking of slavery... In that little tiny letter, it's the short, it's the only exclusively letter, letter in the New Testament. In that little letter that Paul wrote, a prisoner in Rome at the time, he wrote to a slave owner named Philemon. The Greek is Philemon, but we'll say Philemon. He writes this letter to him. Not a word about a single doctrine, but an earnest, a, 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 a Christian treatise on love and tact. In that little letter, there's guiding counsel for the movement in the third millennium. I want to take you to it. So, can you find Philemon? If you can find the book of Hebrews, it's the one page just before Hebrews. It doesn't have chapters. It's just a few verses. Philemon. Go to Philemon. Grab the Pew Bible. If you don't uh, have your own Bible, it's page 803 in the Pew Bible. Now, Paul, Paul is writing to a Christian slave owner named Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus. And Philemon is angry. He's lost a valuable runaway slave. Turns out Onesimus 
fled to Rome. He knew Paul was in Rome. Maybe he didn't know Paul was in prison. But Paul somehow, Onesimus and Paul connect. Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus. He's become a follower of Christ. And now Paul is sending him back to his master. Watch this. Philemon, let's pick it up, uh, verse 12. I am sending him, Paul writes, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But verse 14, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you, would, you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. It's brilliantly written, this letter. Verse 15, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Now watch this, verse 16. No longer as a slave. This is the closest Paul will get to even breathing the notion, I'm ordering you to let this man go. They had manumission back then. You could speak two Latin words and pronounce your slave free, a free man. This is as close as Paul gets. Man, when he comes back, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Oh, he's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, you, historians estimate at the time of Paul's writing that the ratio of slaves to freemen in the Roman Empire was three to one. Three slaves to every free man. And with so many slaves, the ruling class felt obliged to enact severe slave laws to prevent escape or revolt. So in normal circumstances, it would not go well for Onesimus to go back to his master. So Paul here is appealing to the slave owner with these powerful words. Now here we go. The words that must become a template for our black-white relations within this community of faith. And here are the words, verse 8. Verse 8, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet, verse 9, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Let me put that sentence up isolated on the screen for you. I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. The Greek word agape, it's Calvary love. It's self-sacrificing love. For God so loved the world. That's the love I'm appealing to you on, the basis of. It occurs to me, my friends, that this appeal is the only hope for this movement today. What are you talking about? I'll tell you. July 24, 1895. That little 17-year-old teenager we talked about last week, she's grown up to be an aged woman now. Ellen White writes the leadership of this fledgling denomination living in Battle Creek, Michigan. She writes a, she writes a no-holds-barred, almost-in-your-face letter. We need to read that letter. This is an extensive quote that is in your study guide now. Extensive, but I needed you to have this much of that letter. Let's begin reading the letter, somewhere in the middle. In the past, she writes, some attempts have been made to present the truth to the colored people. It's the language of the 19th century. Colored people, we don't use that today. In the past, some attempts have been made to present the truth to the colored people, but those among the white people who claim to believe the truth have wanted to build a high partition. Get that word a high partition between themselves and the colored race. 
We have one Savior. Jot that down. One Savior who died for the black man as well as for the white. Those who possess the Spirit of Christ will have pity and love for all who know not the precious Savior. They will labor at the utmost of their ability to wipe away the reproach of ignorance from white and black alike. End quote. Hit the pause button right there. Now I need to be, I need to be candid with you. And I need you to hear the heart more than the lips. Could it be that we are still building a high partition in this movement of faith? In a nation where the racial chasm is widening? Look, if the events of Ferguson and Staten Island and Phoenix and L.A. and Benton Harbor tell us anything, the chasm is growing. In a nation like this, do separate conferences and separate congregations demonstrate this Bible appeal on the basis of self-sacrificing love? Hmm? Oh, it's true. Accommodations were made after the abolition of slavery for judicatory division. That means dividing the church up in organization on the basis of race, ostensibly to allow black leadership to flourish without overweening, over, overpowering superintendents by white leadership. But those are old, old stories now. With American society racially fragmenting in front of our eyes, how persuasive is church organization that depends on separate but equal still when the nation long ago abandoned it? How can we appeal to a fragmented society on the basis of love when we ourselves are fragmented? Go figure. There's a new generation in this church today that is no longer interested in the retelling and rehashing of the stories of the past. It's no good to keep telling the next generation the stories to fan what could be left behind. A young African-American on this campus told me, I grew up in New Jersey, she said. I grew up in a black church, Seventh-day Adventist Church in New Jersey. I went to a camp meetings, which in the Northeast was one giant camp meeting filled with black people. I knew about Oakwood University. I knew about Pine Forge Academy. And I thought that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is an African-American church. She's here. And then I went off to academy, and I discovered, good night, there are whites in this church. Guys, somebody is keeping a story going that needs to stop. Stop that story. It's time to write a new one. A new generation God will raise up, I'm absolutely convinced. A new generation God will raise up to write a new story for the end game on this planet and in the, in the nation of the United States. This is the only place on the planet where special dispensation has been given for racial separation. Nowhere else on earth. In fact, wherever we find it, the GC goes right in and says, stop it, stop it. Well, what about back where your headquarters are? Well, that's a little different story. You have to understand that. What's so different about our story? We struggle like everybody else. There's a new generation in this church 
that knows the tragic racial inequities, and I'm telling you what, let's be honest, there have been tragic racial inequities that today are inexcusable what happened in the past. I understand that. But why should a, a solution that was theoretically necessary to resolve those inequities long ago be clamped onto a church that needs to demonstrate to the world Jesus' appeal on the basis of love? You say, ah, oh, come on, do I get over it? It's too late. It's too late. We're already entrenched. And besides, we like it this way as blacks and whites. Looks like we'll just have to go to the kingdom divided, at least in America. Are you kidding? We're going to go to heaven divided? There will be no heaven for this church as long as we are divided. Jesus will not come. Mark those words. He will not come to a divided, fragmented church. We need a new generation that says, this is crazy. Let's change the story. Let's, let's rewrite the script. Ellen White again. The colored people have been neglected because of, because of the vexed question of how to build a wall of distinction between the whites and the blacks has been in agitation. Got to have that wall. Got to keep the partition. Some have thought it was the best way to reach the white people first, for if we should labor for the colored people, we'd do nothing for the white population. This is not the right position to assume. Christ followers are to learn all about the woes of the poor. Would you write that word in, please? Because she is a social activist, and her bottom line concern is over the poor. Christ followers are to learn all about the woes of the poor in their immediate vicinity and in their own country, be they white or black. The poor, friendless, untaught colored people. This is post-slavery now. Trying to get a grip in this nation that is very slow to grant them a place in society. She writes, the poor, friendless, untaught colored people need our assistance because they are ignorant and friendless. Those who have, who have a dark, disagreeable life are the very ones whom we should bid to hope because Christ is their Savior. God has jewels in the rough and His true followers will find them. All who possess the Spirit of Christ will have a tender, sympathetic heart and an open, generous hand. And I love this line, those who press close to the bleeding side of Christ. Always Calvary, always Calvary. Those who press, press close to the bleeding side of Christ will have the Spirit of Christ and a nature that will be quickly responsive to His call. They will work to relive the necessities of suffering humanity as Christ's work while before the world fallen, the world's unfallen, and all the heavenly host. Christ was representing the ways and works of God when He was here. In the life of Christ, last line, in the life of Christ we see what a Christian can do in relieving the distressed, binding up their physical and spiritual wants End quote. July 24, 1895. It's time for a new generation. It's time for a new generation to rise up and say, we can do better than this. We really can. Passion for Jesus, passion for His soon coming, passion to reach the world. We can do better. On the basis of love, we can. Listen, guys, I'm talking to you young. You have declared yourselves to be, oh, we are now the generation of activism. We've got to get on the streets. We're going to protest. We're going to march. Good for you. Good for you. But the good news is you don't have to go down to Ferguson, Missouri. You can stay very close to home and march for something that matters here, that matters for this movement that you have joined as a young adult. Some of you, and I need you to listen carefully now, or at least some of you hear this. 
Some of you are already moving toward positions of leadership in this movement. And I am praying for you. I don't know who you are. You don't even know who you are. But God has marked you. God has said, that girl, that boy, that's the leader I need. I pray that you will have the moral courage, missing perhaps in those of us who are older and who would much rather maintain the status quo than take on the terribly complicated task for rebuilding the church in America until she reflects her Lord and Savior's appeal on the basis of self-sacrificing love. We're afraid to touch it. You are not. We need a new generation of reformers. We need a new generation of activists in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that's why you were born. That's why you're here. The legacy of leadership is yours. Oh, those words of Ellen White, I read them a moment ago. Put them on the screen again, please. Those who press close to the bleeding side of Christ will have the spirit of Christ and a nature that will be quickly responsive to his call. God is calling you as a young leader. He is calling you. Be responsive to that call. Only as we draw near to the cross will we find the moral courage to stand alone if we must, but stand we shall. By the way, it's not only the church that needs you. Society really does need you. That's why I need to invite you today to join Pastor Torres Montgomery, our young African-American pastor who's on our staff here. He's pastoring our campus church. We have a campus church, the Pioneer Campus in Benton Harbor. It's called Harbor of Hope. He's the pastor of it. He has planned with the city fathers for Martin Luther King Day a thousand-man march. That would be this Monday. You see the posters that have been around. I said, hey, Taurus, come on. Give me one a one-sentence synopsis of what this march stands for. These are his words. Put it on the screen, please. The purpose of this march is to honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by raising awareness of deeper issues connected with recent events in our country and arouse concerned citizens to take personal action to make a difference in the Fergusons near us. Benton Harbor is a Ferguson near us. He pastors in the inner city, lives in the inner city. What are the issues? Poverty, lack of employment, fatherless homes, Mass incarceration of African-American males. Racial profiling. Dropping out of high school. Social justice. Social activism. And so the buses are going to be right in front of Lamson Hall. Monday morning. Monday afternoon. 1230. Right in front of Lamson Hall. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want, you to, I, want, <clears throat> I want you to join Pastor Torres. And I want you to join me. As we ride. By the way, this is intergener intergenerational, those buses, and they're interracial. I want you to join us Monday. Come on. It's a day off. Do something positive. Let's go march. Press will be there. We can take a stand. Like our young pioneers before us. We can take a stand. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the great letters on file in human archives, incarcerated in Birmingham, wrote a letter entitled Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And in that letter, I keep, I keep it on my cell phone. I have it. I just read it again this week. 
Quotes 20 people by memory, 20 great authors by memory, no library, nothing, no internet, nothing. He's just by memory. He studied. Martin Luther King Jr., this sentence, I put it on the screen for you. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We cannot sit idly by. We must become socially, spiritually active. Agitate. Agitate. Ellen White again, we just read this a moment ago. Christ followers are to learn all about the woes of the poor in their immediate vicinity. That's where we're going. And in their own country, be they white or black. If you'd like to lend your voice and presence to this mission and take a stand, come and join us Monday, 1230. In front of Lampson. Let me read it again. Philippians, I mean Philemon 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Amen. Pull out your connect card, please. Because you can't, we cannot encounter a Bible teaching like this and not respond. Guests, we're always glad to have you. And on the front of the card, you put your name and email. Uh, address, and if for one of these response, responses, you'll need an email address. Turn the card over. My next step today. Here they are. Number one, I pray for race relations in my church to reflect Jesus' appeal on the basis of love. We can start praying. We can start praying. Here come the, here come the ushers. They're going to get these cards in just a split second. We can start praying. Put a check mark there. Number two, I will march in support of social justice for all races on the basis of love. Buses, 1230, Monday. Come join us. And finally, number three, through emails and social media, I will appeal for the organization of church conferences that model racial unity on the basis of love. If you put a check mark there, we will send you addresses and names. You can't just sit here. You need to raise your voice. You can start your own Facebook page. They're young like you by the thousands. I've talked to them across this nation. They're ready to go. It may take a leader from Andrews University to ignite an appeal on the basis of love. But we need your email address uh, if you check box three. Turn, turn your card over. Our ushers are now going to receive our morning tithes and offerings, but I need to pray with you before they do. Oh, God, this is not about us. This is not even about our pioneers, young and visionary and idealistic as they were and which we must be. This is not even about the passions of the, for the Savior and His soon coming and the salvation of the lost. Oh, God, this is your character on the line. Why will the world ever go, why will the nation ever go to a church that is fragmented? What's the witness? How long do we live with this witness? fractured itself. Oh, God, we have godly leaders. Move on their hearts, I pray. Send to them young associates who also with great courage will stand for the right and raise up a unified movement at the end of time to go to earth on the basis of self-sacrificing love. Receive our offerings in Jesus' name. Amen.